really appreciate Kevin describing the process because uh, we really don't see this room or this facility as the church. I know we use that vernacular sometimes. You go into church and they point over there. But the, the reality is we are the church. And we can go stand out there and we'll still be the church. And we can go meet in another place and we'll be the church. Uh, so that's important. It's important also to know that, that uh, we as a community have never really been attached to a facility. We've moved about seven, six or seven times. Um, we started in a, in a homeless shelter downtown. Uh, raise your hand if you know where Chili's is. Uh, just imagine a, a, a condemned building right there. If you've been around Spokane, you know there's a three-story building. That's where our church started. And it was an uh, overflow shelter for women and children where our family moved in. And, and uh, we started in there with homeless women and their families. And uh, it was awesome. I mean, the building wasn't occupied all the time. So for my kids, it was like a huge playground to have this three-story building. You know, they just run ape in this building at different times. And they thought it was the coolest thing to live in a shelter. Um, then we moved to a place on the north side. Then we moved to the West Central Community Center for a while. Then we moved into Hilliard for a while. And then we moved here. And we've been here actually the longest uh, any, of any of the stops we've had. Uh, but really the building's uh, a, a great building. We have asked people to give us buildings before. And we were so close a couple times. <laughs> but uh, this is not one of them. Uh, we're actually going to pay. And uh, so I'll be a little stronger than Kevin. We will need you know, so quite a bit of money. Uh, I, I think the, le- the less amount that we have to borrow, the better. Would you agree? I mean, that's really a, a biblical principle, so we want to uh, keep that in mind. And some of you have rich relatives. You might want to be thinking about how you're going to contact them uh, about uh, supporting what we're going to do. I do want to talk about the church this morning. And uh, I, I've entitled this talk, uh, Creating a Community of the Kingdom. I need to know that uh, I'm, I'm a little bit of a mixed-up guy. Uh, I, that probably doesn't surprise some of you that know me. But I'm a mixed-up guy in as much as um, I love the church. I love strategizing about the church. I love trying to figure out how the church can be more effective in the world. But I also think the church gets in the way of God sometimes. I'm like, I think I have great affinity with Augustine when he says about the church, She's a whore, but she's my mother. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have that bittersweet feeling about how the church is and sometimes behaves in the world, but I certainly do. A friend of mine did a survey, Alan Hurst did a survey in Australia uh, in several of the urban centers there, and they asked people um, a series of four questions. One was, what do you think about God? Another one is, what do you think about spirituality? Another one is, what do you think about Jesus? And the last one is, what do you think about the church? Well, you can probably predict the responses. Pretty generally speaking, at least, uh, people across the board, they're, they're not that offended about God, as long as they can kind of make up God how they want. And then there's the idea of spirituality. There was a great uh, response to spirituality. And even Jesus... Uh, asking people about what do you think about Jesus, and, and for the most part, people thought Jesus was a pretty good idea. Once again, as long as they could kind of make up Jesus in their mind, how they want him. But when it came to the church, the response was universally negative. And I'll tell you that the church has a reputation issue. 
I think Kevin spoke about this a few weeks ago. And I, I don't, believe me, I, I, I do love the church, but I do think that there's some issues. Now, for those of you who are new to New Community, about a year and a half ago, I stepped out of the role of pastoring the church, and I took on the role of running this international nonprofit called Christian Associates. Now, just so you know, Christian Associates is an organization that plants churches in the world, mostly in Western Europe, but we're in about uh, four other locations at this point. And a lot of people asked me uh, what my vision is for Christian Associates. They're wondering because, particularly as a new leader of the organization, they're wondering, okay, what's the first 90 days going to look like? And, you know, my response is usually when you follow a founder, you get, you know, they kill you. And uh, that hasn't happened yet. I'm into a year and a half. I'm doing okay. Uh, but that question comes up over and over. What do you, what's your dream? And I, I think I surprise a lot of people in what I say. I might surprise you. My hope and my objective is not to grow Christian Associates uh, as an organization. As a matter of fact, this is the part that might surprise you. My ultimate goal is not even to start churches. Uh, my grand goal, the thing that keeps me awake at night outside of my age. Honestly, the older you get, the harder it is to sleep. Can I get an amen for somebody over 50? It's brutal. Sheesh. Okay, outside of that, um, it's ultimately to start communities that represent the kingdom of God in the world. I know, you're sitting there going right now, um... That sounds a lot like starting churches. Well, it is, and it isn't. It isn't in as much as uh, oftentimes what's happening in church planting and starting churches in the world. By the way, I, f- I forgot to do this. Could you shoot this, that slide? I was going to do this. These are actually churches that we've started here for out of this church. Some of you might not be aware of this. Vintage Faith is pastored by Steve Hart. He was our youth pastor. We gave him the boot. He went and started the church. Olive Branch got cross. He was on our staff. Kicked him out. The Vine, Jeremy Wanch was our worship leader. Gave him the boot too. And then this last fall, uh, Ryan Miller on staff. David Vaughn on staff. You kind of see a trend. You should be concerned about Kevin right now, actually. He's got a target on his back. He just doesn't see it from where he's sitting. <laughs> no, the reality is, I mean, oftentimes churches that are started in, in Western culture, they're starting around an, a wrong idea. They're starting worship services rather than churches. I, I had a conversation with a guy just a short time ago. He came to me and said, hey, listen, I want to start a church in this one area because I want to reach college kids like you guys do at New Community. I want to disciple them. And his whole thing is, I just want to hang out with college kids. So he says, we're going to start it here and start it on this night. It's going to be really cool because that's when college kids want to go to church. <laughs> and I'm like, are you serious? Really? And I, he goes, what do you think? And I go, do you really want me to tell you what I think? He goes, and he actually kind of like tightened his stomach. Like, yeah, give it to me. And I just go, listen, don't do it. We don't need any churches. As a matter of fact, there's lots of churches that, are, that, don't, that have lots of seats left. And if all you want to do is do church, then go plug into one of those churches and disciple kids in that church. This is what you need to do. You ready? 
Go home, take your pastor hat off, stick it in the closet, take your missionary hat, put it on, go to that area, try to reach people for Christ, and if God actually shows up, then think about starting a church. But don't do it. We don't need more worship services in our city. The churches aren't filled now. The only reason we should agree to start churches is if we're going to do mission. Okay, I'm going to show you a quote. This is from Howard Snyder. He's as old as, uh, well, he's, he's about 120 now. Uh, but Howard Snyder's a theologian, missiologist. He wrote a book called The Problem of Wineskids. I read it when I was 25, and it changed the way I look at church. This quote is from a book called Liberating the Church. Follow along with me. The church gets in trouble whenever it thinks it is the church business, rather, it's in the church business rather than the kingdom business. In the church business, people are concerned with church activities, religious behavior, and spiritual things. In the kingdom business, people are concerned with kingdom activities, all human behavior, and everything God has made visible and invisible. Kingdom people see human affairs as saturated with scriptural meaning and kingdom significance. Next slide. Kingdom people seek first the kingdom of God and its justice. Church people often put church work above concerns of justice and mercy. Church people think about how to get people in the church. Kingdom people think about how to get the church into the world. I just have to stop. If that doesn't resonate with you, you have not been listening When we talk about the church, our goal is to be in the world, not to collect people. Church people worry that the world will change the church. Kingdom people work to see the church change the world. If the church has one great need, it is this, to be set free for the kingdom of God, to be liberated from itself as it has become in order to be itself as God intends. So when you ask me about starting churches... If it's not like that, I don't want to be involved in starting churches. Okay, here's the positive side. The answer is yes, I want to start churches because the church has the wild potential and responsibility to be the beautiful representation of the kingdom of God in the world. That's in us as the people of God. So this morning, uh, this afternoon... uh, what I want to do is talk about how that can happen. How can we be that kingdom community? Now listen, when I think about what that's supposed to look like, I, I, I think you would agree with me, the best place to start is looking at the life of Jesus. That's really the best place. If we were to be in the business of establishing kingdom communities, it would serve us best to look at the Jesus model, how he engaged real people. Jesus provides the most comprehensive understanding of the kingdom uh, what it means to, concerning the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 5, verses or 5 through 7. That's what passage is that, right? Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of his magnum opus. It's his grand statement of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. However, in the very, uh, the, the, the chapter that's immediately preceding, there's a statement that defines and clarifies his kingdom ministry. Immediately after spending 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying, upon hearing that John the Baptist was arrested, he says that he, it says that he settled into Capernaum, and it says this, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, and, and I know he's flashing this, but I don't know if he's with me, it, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, 
for the kingdom of God has come near. The parallel passage is in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And it says this, very similarly, similarly, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus, just before he gives this massive, important statement about the kingdom, he says, this is what I'm about. Right? He begins to preach the, the gospel of the kingdom, and he says how he does it. If you have a Bible, look at uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 23. This is immediately before chapter 5, and it says this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and healing every one of their diseases. What I'm going to suggest to you, <clears throat> excuse me, is that's a tripart understanding of what we're supposed to be about as a kingdom community. Let me start out with this. The first thing is uh, the idea of Jesus came and he preached the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And when we say that, it's important for us to talk a little bit about what that means. I believe that when it says that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom, he was declaring something, right? He was telling a message. I believe what that message was, was the accessibility of the reign of God. He was declaring the reign of God, the communication of the accessibility of God's life. In, in one of my favorite books, The Divine Conspiracy, D- Dallas Willard paraphrases Mark chapter 1, verse 15 this way. He says, Jesus then came into Galilee, announcing the good news from God. All the preliminaries have been taken care of, and the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. Renew your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new activity or opportunity. Willard goes on and he says this, In and through the person of Jesus Christ himself, the government and the reign or kingdom of God from heaven was now available to everyone. So when he preached the gospel, oftentimes we, we distill it or re- render it down or re- reduce it to this idea that it's just a personal salvation and I say a prayer and then I get to go to heaven, which it is. But it's much more than that. Really what he's talking about is he's declaring the idea of God's reign, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That we are to step into this relationship with God as him as king, as Jesus as king. And oftentimes that's missed. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but um, Paul's declaration of what the gospel was, uh, was is oftentimes confusing. He, he talks about the gospel in, in uh, propositions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, John, or Paul says this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For I received what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised from the dead, and so forth. Right? So he shares these propositions, but what he's doing is he's locating the gospel story in the person and work of Jesus. So when we talk about declaring the the gospel, we're not just saying this is a formula. What we're talking about is we have to come to the place of surrendering our life. When we think of even the term kingdom, first of all, the first part of the word is king, We can't have a kingdom without a a ruler, right? That's Jesus. And then there's a dome. 
there's a reign. There's a sphere in which that king reigns. Does that make sense? So when we're, we're preaching the gospel, essentially what we're doing is we're inviting people inside or underneath that reign. It's not simply a sinner's prayer. It's a life prayer. I'm stepping under the rule and control of the King Jesus. I've shared this before, but it's, it's a staggering statistic. Uh, Gallup came up with the statistic last year. 73% of Americans say they're Christians. And I, I hear that stat, and I just go, something's wrong. And we go outside. That's not real out there. If 73% of our country's Christians, something's broken. You should be going, that's right. Something's broken. And I want to tell you that what's broken is oftentimes we're telling people a gospel that's really just a gospel of get to heaven gospel, and it's not the gospel of the kingdom, that he is a king and we have to step under his rule and follow him. So Jesus, he says, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. We can't get, we shouldn't get, we ought not get too far away from what Jesus said. And he said, this is the gospel that I have, the gospel of the kingdom of God. He challenges us to a different kingship. Consider the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, the same here as it is in heaven. Unabashed, unrestrained, pure, holy, lovely in every way. That's the kingdom we're praying about. The declaration of God's reign and his desire to be fulfilled with humanity the way it was created. He called every one of us to this new allegiance. So, I mean, I suppose I should do an altar call or something right now. It's not in my notes. But really, that's where all of us should come to this place where we've actually realigned our life with the king. And he says this, that we ought to believe this gospel and we need to repent. Now, the challenging part for me when we use the word repentance is if you come from a church culture, repentance usually means to be against something else, right? It means to turn from something. That's literally what the word metanoia means. But if we're to understand it in a, in a full or biblical perspective, it really is much different than that. When I became a Christian, it was kind of like, okay, Rob, those are bad things. Get rid of those. Here's some good things. Get, get into those, and that's really what Christianity was. But in the Old Testament, there's a term, teshuva is, is actually the phrase, and, and it doesn't mean to be, turn away from something. It means to enter into something. It means to enter into the, re-enter into the way of Torah. So if you would imagine this pathway, this is the pathway of God. Repentance means this. I'm going to step into it and follow in this path. I'm going to get into this pathway of God, and all of a sudden, some of those phrases that Jesus uses about pathways and doors and narrow ways and all that, it begins to make sense. That's what he's calling us to, is to repent. We're entering into his way, and we're going to follow him into that. If you have become a Christian under any other auspices, auspice, I don't know what, how, the, how do you say that, um, any other way, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to reconsider where you're at. If we're to be a community of the kingdom, we have to declare the gospel, the full gospel. Okay. There's there's one other thing I need to say about this gospel that he declared, and that is the idea that it's, uh, theologians say, the already not yet kingdom. 
In my tradition, and I'm not going to pick on it too hard right now, but my tradition, the kingdom of God was always out there somewhere. It was never here. As a matter of fact, I hear people, even now that I'm around, use escapism language. Like, man, I wish Jesus had come back now because everything's really crappy. And that doesn't make sense to me at this point. Here's, here's a passage. I'm going to read it to you. This is Luke chapter 4, one of the most important ch- uh, sections to talk about the kingdom. Do you have that one ready? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and everybody was fixed on him. You know the next thing he says? He looks back at them and he says this, Today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. I mean, think about what everybody's thinking. Everybody's looking at him going, him? Wait a minute. Isn't that Joseph's son, the guy that built stuff? How can this be? And he stands up and he present tense says, today. And when we understand the kingdom, Jesus has all this language of the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is upon you. All this language of present tense. And oftentimes, depending on your eschatological perspective or your perspective of the future, you don't know what to do with that. Can I tell you that we need to understand the kingdom both as out there, but as now. This is critically important as we move into these next two sections. The next thing Jesus says is not only, not only did he declare something, but he, he actually, it says that he taught in the synagogues, which means, I'm going to use the word just to stick with an alliteration, he defined something. He defined the kingdom. Now listen... It's important for any ministry that we're involved in, there needs to be a declarative piece. We have to tell the story of Jesus, right? But there has to be an educational piece as well. There has to be a point where we give instruction of what this true followership looks like. Jesus gave instruction about what life could be like if one would align oneself with the radical king. He came dispelling falsehood, delivering truth, uh, This represents the clarification of the authentic way that life ought to be. He declared a true and transcendent way to view reality and being. Really, if we want to move forward in the text, we'd land directly at the water main of this teaching. As a matter of fact, I think it's even more intuitive than that. I think we could break up into groups of four or five each right now, and you guys could make a list of what this looks like. If you've read the Gospels, you can begin to, in your mind, conjure ideas of, and, and pictures of Jesus communicating truth to people. And what he's doing is he's defining. He's not just declaring that it's accessible at this point, but he's defining what that actually looks like. That's got to be a piece of who we are as a community. Why do we need this? Because we are all discipled. 
right? Each one of us has been discipled. As soon as we do this, <gasps> we start getting discipled. Our, our parents, that was getting born right there. <laughs> you don't remember it because you don't have memories back that far. Our parents, our friends, our schools, the media, the cinema, all of those things create inputs into our life, and this is what it does. All those things tell us what is valuable, right? What is good, what is bad, what's valuable, what's... And we begin to have this kind of construct of the way real life should be. And then Jesus comes along and says, repent and believe the good news of the gospel, the kingdom of God is near. And he says that we have to understand what this means to follow him. And all of a sudden, there's this countercultural input into all of those lessons we've had. That's why we have this great commission. Go make disciples of everyone, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to what? Obey everything I've commanded you. Not just to learn it, but to obey it. So really what happens is, as a community, we need to teach into what the kingdom life is all about, which means everything's on the table. It means our view of sexuality is on the table, our view of how we use our money is on the table, our view of how we parent and how we interact with others is on the table, the way we deal with our enemies is on the table, the way we look at war and countries and nationalism and all that stuff gets on the table, and we have to be discipled into the kingdom. As a matter of fact, I challenge you to find something that's not on the table. If we're to step under this rain, right, this dome, then there's nothing outside of it. And the role of a community of faith is to train into that. What does that mean? Are you, are you following me? So if we're to be a kingdom community, we have to have a declarative piece, and then we have to have a defining piece as well. Let me get to the last one, because I went too long in the first service. The last uh, of this triad is, it says he went about healing uh, every disease. And to stick with the mnemonic alliteration, which I rarely do this type of thing, uh, he's not just saying that he came declaring, it's not just saying that he came declaring something or defining something, but he came demonstrating something, came demonstrating the kingdom. Um, one of my, I would say, if not my favorite, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Leslie Newbigin. Um, he wrote in several places this, and I'm, I'm going to pull this from memory, so you've probably not read it yourself, so you'll never know whether it's right or wrong. Anybody read a lot of Newbigin? There you go. See? I can say whatever I want right now. This is, what, in essence, what he says. He said, how can it be that a man hanging on a cross can be the last word in any human society? How can he be the person that people listen to? And he says this, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, the only translation of the gospel, the only true communicator of the gospel is this, a community who both believes and lives that gospel. See, it's not just me going out into the world and being authentically Christian. It's us being a community in that sense. 
When we understand that, we understand that the way we live this out, if we're really taking this kingdom stuff serious, as we live this out together, we're, we're preaching a message corporately. We're, pre- we're preaching a message to the world. See, oftentimes churches begin to think that they exist to be a church, when the reality, as Newbegin has so aptly stated, that the church is to be a sign, a foretaste, and an instrument of the kingdom. It's supposed to point to that grand kingdom and, and give people a taste of what that looks like. That's the already part. And we need to be an instrument of that, working toward that kingdom here on earth. By our words, and just as importantly, by our actions, we point to the beautiful kingdom. We give a glimpse of this kingdom, and we are an agency or a tool of that kingdom. So what did it look like to them? If you still have your Bibles open, I love this passage right here, where it does say that he taught in the synagogue, he preached the good news of the kingdom. Then it says, healing every disease and sickness. Now listen, this is among the people, verse 24 News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them all. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across the Jordan followed him. Um, He actually touched physical lives heard some people say this, that uh, I'm not really going to care about the poor. What difference does it make if they go to hell? I'm just going to tell them about Jesus. And I just go, that is is a Greek philosophy. That's not Christianity. We don't have a dualism. We actually see people as real people, holy. And it's not just so they can get a ticket somewhere. It's that that we actually care about their lives just the way Jesus did. Look at he, he healed, he exercised, he relieved, he touched physically. Here's a, a Dutch theologian. Uh, Johan Verkel wrote this. Finally, the gospel of the kingdom addresses itself to all immediate human need, both physical and mental. It aims to right what is wrong on earth. It enjoins engagement in the struggle for racial, social, cultural, and economic, political, and political justice. Let me, let me explain it this way. Um, a long time ago now, 15 years ago or so, um, Robbie and I took a group of student-athletes to Europe to play basketball. Uh, actually, the group, there's about 190 teenagers that we went to Europe with, which is stupid. I'm just going to say it. I mean, I don't even want to go with 10 at this point. <clears throat> I mean, to have that many, we, we occupied half the jet, right? I mean, it was, a, it was a jungle. Many of them had never flown before. And so when we took off, you know, like when you go down a hill on a roller coaster, what do people do? Woo! So I had 180 kids doing that. I'm just like keeping my head down. I'm not really with this group. And, uh, and then when they actually touched down in London, they all cheered <clears throat> like it was a miracle. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not lying. It was like, yeah, we made it landed safely. Uh, obviously, everyone else was quite nervous uh, to have them on board with them. 
Well, I, I had a group of about 24 that traveled around with me. There was a group of, uh, there were teenage girls. I had a team of uh, older high school girls and, and pre or right going into college, and then some younger late junior high, early high school girls. And uh, raise your hand if you've ever rode the tube in London. Yeah. Just so you know, those of you who haven't rode the tube in London or any type of uh, mass transit is... Uh, a lot of Americans think those sliding door things, they're like elevator doors. And if I put my hand in it, it actually opens it back up. Well, we didn't realize, and our guy didn't actually apprise us, the fact is you have to actually get on. And get on. And if you don't get on, you're not going to get on, right? And so we kind of get on. We're trying to be polite. Like, excuse me, uh, you know, you just got to That's what you got to get on. So, you know, we're doing this, and all of a sudden, what the voice over the intercom says what? Mind the gap. Now, we have no idea what the gap is, you know, as or, you know, virgin travelers. And then there's a bell, and then the door closes, right? And if you're not on, you don't get to go. You, so we're pushing on, mind the gap. <laughs> and everybody's trying to, excuse me. And then all of a sudden, mind the gap, boop, and the door closes, and like a 14 and a 16-year-old girl, girls from the Midwest didn't get on. And they're like this. This is their faces. <laughs> and, and actually, I had that face too. Because I'm thinking, I've got to call their parents. Like, we've lost your children in London. I know there's 20 million people, but I'm sure they'll be fine. Fortunately, our guy just, I didn't realize, he just jumped back on the other one and went back and got him. They were shuddering in the, on the platform, and we were reunited. It was fine. If you'll allow me to use that analogy to describe what I'm thinking when I talk about this idea of being an instrument of the kingdom. I believe our role is to mind the gap. Now, hang with me just for one second. If you, in your imagination, can imagine what things will be like when Christ makes all things right, if you can imagine that, you can imagine the gap. Because where we're at right now and where it needs to be, that's the place we do ministry. So if you go to the Dominican Republic, like many of us have, and you go to Abate with Haitian refugees, and you look at that, That is not the way Jesus is going to have it when he returns. That's not the way it looks. When you see somebody injured by sin, you look at that person's life and you go, that's not the way it looks at Christ's return. At the end of all time, when Christ writes all things, that's not the way it looks. The problem is we get so seduced into our life, we begin to go, well, that's just okay. You know, that'll be okay. You look at, I mean, I love Bob praying this morning for what's going on in Japan. How can you have a hard heart toward that? That's not the way it's going to be. And our role to be a kingdom community is to see the gap and to live into that and live toward that that consummation. How can we allow... And we, we can make a whole cache of items for this. How can we allow gender inequality? Is that the way it's going to be when Jesus returns? 
Can you imagine that? I can't. Can you imagine be people living in abject poverty at the consummation of all things? Listen, uh, I don't know what motivates your life, but can I, can I call you to at least think about this as a kingdom person, as someone who cares about the things that, that, that Christ cares about? I mean, he saw these people, they came, they, were, they had demons, and they were paralyzed, and they were injured, and they were in seizures, and he reached out and touched every one of them. David Bosch wrote this, and I'm, I'm going to wrap up with this. He wrote, if God's tomorrow means the end of exploitation, injustice, inequality, war, racism, nationalism, suffering, death, and ignorance of God, Christians must be signs of God's conquest of all these burdens and evils through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. With these ideas in mind, we begin to understand what I believe the true charter of ministry in the community is. It isn't to house people or hold people who have come to believe in Jesus. It isn't to be a container trying to keep people in. It certainly isn't to entertain folks as some sort of drug. One of my favorite bloggers, a theologian by the name of David Fitch, wrote a blog about a month ago talking about this idea of entertaining Christians. He wrote a blog that was entitled, The Role of the Church is to Bore the Hell Out of People. <laughs> it's not to hoard resources or collect those resources. It is, by its life, its words, and its actions, to show an unbelieving world that there's a grand alternative. Pray with me.